here. I feel like I have to give a preface. We're in like week two of a series on why the biblical worldview provides or presents a better sexual ethic from the secular worldview. So I did like a very long kind of teaching message last week, and then afterwards, handed out, or actually while I was sharing, handed out note cards and asked people to write one question, whether broad or personal, it was all anonymous, one topic, the thing that you would want us to dive into in future weeks. And we're not going to do them all consecutive, but this is a consecutive week, and then we'll jump into something different next week and pick back up in the spring. And so you might be like, you're jumping in week two, that's what I want to tell you. I'll give you like a five minute kind of like cliff notes summary version of what we talked about last week. If you want my full notes, I literally will like email you, whatever, send you my notes. It would be helpful for you to enter in through that point of the conversation. But we also pray for every person who's going to be here tonight. So I believe that you're here by God's providence, whether you're here last week or not. But I do want to just tell you, it's like the first time at night we're talking about like human sexuality, right? And that can be uncomfortable for people, but it has to be talked about, right? Because if we don't enter the conversation, you're going to get your sexual ethics from TV, from movies, from a broken sexual script that was maybe handed down to you from your family. We have to enter this conversation. I believe it is one of the biggest giants in the land today. And by that, I mean like it is one of the biggest just spiritual targets that the enemy has painted on the back of this generation and he is using to just... Uh, steep people in shame and guilt and condemnation and I, I talked to probably in the last year and a half literally hundreds, I don't have an exact number but hundreds of people out on the sidewalk having gospel conversations and the sad thing is I meet so many people who do not deny Christianity or haven't walked away from Christianity because they can't believe it's historical claims to the incarnation the crucifixion of Jesus or his resurrection it's on the basis of sexual ethics wow. that they're saying, I don't want to follow Jesus wow. because of wow. Christians' view on LGBTQ wow. or because of a biblical worldview, or, or they maybe not, might not say this, but I want to have sex outside of marriage and I don't want to adhere to the Bible's definition uh, of what marriage is and where sexuality belongs. I've met countless numbers of people. What that really means is we in our culture have elevated sex to the level of an idol. You know? wow. We have rejected God on the basis of what we deem to be more valuable and more important. And that's sexuality and also pride. When we can confront, be confronted by God's word and we say, yeah, but that's not the way that culture is going. I'd rather be agreeable with culture than agreeable with God. That's pride, right? That is like the definition of pride when we place ourselves above God's word and we say, I'm going to define this, God. I won't allow you to define this for me, right? So I said, we, you prayed it. Hey, offend my mind so that I can know you more, right? Um, so a, a quick summary of what we talked about last week. I'm going to try to do this quick. It was a lot, so let me see how fast I can do this. We started with a secular worldview, which I asked Regan before it started, and I asked the room, what's the, and I want to ask you now, what's the last television show, series on Netflix, or movie that you watched where you saw a healthy representation of a marriage? When's the last time you saw a normal, healthy representation in our modern storytelling of marriage? Probably never, maybe. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, we don't have good, and we learn a lot. We take in a lot of our worldview through the stories that we tell. Movies and TV, the reason I'm using that as a reference point, they're the stories that we tell and that shape our worldview. So I started to articulate the secular worldview for you guys last week, which maybe, I think many of you, if you were in the room, maybe you've never heard it articulated that way, but all of a sudden it's kind of like, oh, the light bulb's going off. Yeah, I have either swallowed that or I can see how that's at play in the world. And it basically sounds like this. If we were, if I had the whiteboard here again, picture a line right here, and the lower story is facts, and this is all because of post-enlightenment, where we believe that everything is knowable through science, and what lives in the bottom half is facts, but it's devoid of purpose, right? 
And because it's all just cause and effect on the top level of being value, which is private, subjective, and relativistic, it's, hey, I'm so glad that that works for you. You make an absolute truth claim about the gospel, and so I'm so glad that that works for you, but it has no bearings on their life because they think that Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever other belief system is equally valid, right? But on the fact level, it's like these are the things that we're all subject to together as society, biology, physics, whatever. Now, when that comes into who you are, it trickles down to the level of how we think about people on the top level would be who you are as a person. It's your consciousness. It's your emotions. It's right. It's it's your thought process. But on the bottom level is your biology, your physiology. It's, it's the science level of who you are. And what this creates is a fragmented dualism in which what it means to be a person or a human, sorry, what it means to be a human being is separate from what it means to be a person. Yeah. Okay. This is not good because what it basically says that what I do with my body is separate from who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like. To use contemporary language, we can do friends with, with benefits, we can offer our bodies in sexual relations, but separate our emotions and the rest of our actual most like important part of who we actually are, right? Physiologically, it's not even possible, right? And so what, we, what I tried to do last week was show you that I used broken grammar, that the biblical ethic, which actually does have a dualism, it's in, we are embodied souls, but it's integrated. The two are not at war against each other, setting the body against the soul, but they're an integrated whole. And what I was saying is that the biblical ethic for human sexuality is a more good. It's better. It's not just that like, oh, i got to live out this life with these burdensome rules and do things God ways. It's actually when we see it in light of God's truth, it's a better way to live. And it's more satisfying. It's ultimately more fulfilling, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be more difficult. Right? So that's what we talked about, and then I launched into a lot of times we have conversations, which we will have tonight, about what the Bible like, prohibits, but we don't start with a healthy definition of what it affirms. So last week we talked about the biblical story of marriage. When Jesus was asked a question about marriage, he went back to the creation narrative pre-fall, and he used God's intent and God's design before the fall to define the parameters for marriage, which is a one flesh covenant union between one male and one female. Okay? And that is the story arc of marriage throughout the Bible. Immediately in Genesis 4, after the fall, we read of the first person, Lamech, who took two wives. So we see brokenness all throughout the Bible. The Bible tells a lot of broken stories because it tells the true story. But we see the story arc that God makes covenant with Israel. He's like a husband to Israel. And even when they're unfaithful, he remains faithful. We see that Jew and Gentile in the new covenant, who are the, the bride of Christ, Jesus has offered himself to her in covenant relationship in the last two chapters of the Bible, deal with the marriage again as Jesus marries his bride, right? And so we see this beautiful picture of marriage, the high value that's given to it. And yet we talked about last week how we don't want to idolize marriage. It's not that marriage, like if you're probably no one in the room except for myself, is married tonight. So it's not to put on a level that we idolize it, but we want to maintain the sacredness of marriage and understand that human sexuality belongs within the good parameters and boundaries that God has designed as a one flesh covenant union between one man and one woman for, for all of life. Okay? Have I offended you yet? Okay. <laughs> this is important because this is under attack in your generation. Right. And so we did the note cards last week. We passed them around and asked people, you tell us, what, where do you need help? What do you want to talk about? And overwhelmingly, I was well, not overwhelming, they were close to the top two was sexual temptation in the area of lust and pornography, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, and then how to handle the conversation around LGBTQ, which is a wider topic. We'll jump into that in the spring. I think it's important for you guys, probably everyone in the room has somebody in their life either who is struggling with or has left the faith or is questioning because of 
again, kind of the definition I just gave you for marriage. So we're going to, in the spring, have that conversation. And then also there was a few questions, not nearly as many, but around Christian dating, what that looks like, parameters, boundaries, uh, marriage, stuff like that. We'll get into that probably in the month of February. It's like a love month, you know. Like, so sometime next semester we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll do a panel up here and let you guys ask some questions. But just want to give you a preview of where we're going. Again, if you weren't here last week, you're jumping in week two to that conversation. And that was like a very broad overview of what we talked about last week. The core emphasis, biblical worldview, I believe is more good. It's better. It's not just that. It's like, oh, man, we got to submit to this. It's actually a better way. And I do believe that. So uh, I'm not sure personally if there's any area where the enemy's strategy to steal kill and destroy. You guys know that Jesus said in John 10 that the enemy comes to steal, yeah. kill, and destroy is more apparent than in the area of sexual sin. And as we'll discuss more specifically tonight in the area of lust and pornography. Let me say again, I want you to hear the proper tone. Not like the tone of my voice because this is just the voice that I was born with. I can't do much to change. Like I hope that it sounds nice. I hope that it sounds compassionate and warm and loving. But I want you to hear the tone of the Holy Spirit. Condemnation is from the enemy, right? But conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And for the purpose of leading you to repentance, and repentance is not just turning from sin, it's always a turn towards God. And if God is the greatest good, then every time you move towards him, that is an amazing thing that's happening. So that's why we welcome the ministry of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But he's gentle, he's lowly, he's kind, right? And I want you to not feel steeped in shame and guilt and condemnation tonight. But if this is an area where you're struggling, as many indicate on the card, I'm assuming it was because of their own personal struggles in this area. And I've read the stats about this generation, and I know that no generation in human history has had this more in their face than this generation. I'm 10, maybe 12 years older than most of you, and I'm 32. I could be 14 years older if you're, if you're, 14, if you're 18, that's crazy. <laughs> I, I didn't have this level of temptation available most of my life up until maybe I was like 14, 15, 16. Like, there was one computer in my house, dial-up internet, and it was in the living room, right? Like, that's it, you know? Like, so it's, I didn't, this, the way that this generation is tempted, I don't think there's been a, I'm not saying that previous generations haven't had as much sexual sin in them, I'm just saying it hasn't been as readily available yeah, as it is in this generation. So I just want to say, I want to get in the fight with you, that's why we need to talk about this, right? I, and I believe that there's brothers and sisters and our student leaders and people who are leading Bible studies who want to get in the fight with you and not speak at you and make you feel right, bad, right. but say, guys, God's way is better, and we want to come alongside you and see you walk out full victory in this area, right? So scientists and many people's personal experience or the anecdotal evidence would demonstrate the destructive effects of pornography on its users and the world at large. The only victim of pornography is not just you, okay? There's a whole sex trafficking industry. There are the people who are in these things. And then there are all of your future spouse that's going to be affected, right, by the way that you're seeing the world. And then I want to tell you, so that the only victim of pornography is not you, okay? That's important to set up up front. Uh, porn usage uh, operates much like a drug and is addictive in nature, really the way that it affects your brain chemistry, your neuropathic uh, things I was listening to. There's a great documentary, actually, three-part one. We'll listen to the first part on fightthenewdrug.com. I would strongly encourage you to check it out. They have a ton of free resources. They've done a ton of research around this area. And there was one of the scientists in the first documentary talking about its effects on the brain. And she was like, I was thinking because it was sending all these like reward chemicals that the reward part of the brain of people who use porn regularly would be bigger. But it was the exact opposite. It was actually like their reward system in their brain had shrunk it the more that they used pornography, which is like it's literally destroying the chemistry of your brain the more that you use. And it means that you can, 
you, you have lower levels of happiness, lower levels of joy, lower levels of satisfaction in your daily life. And so I think the correlation, I'm not, again, I've done the study myself, but I would say there's no between the anxiety levels and depression. Could there be some type of correlation between these two? Right? And there's so many other factors, so I don't want to just lop them all, but there is abundant amount of research that would show poor usage is connected to poor mental health, worse quality relationships, and diminishing results in personal levels of satisfaction. Mm -hmm. I want to remind you, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Yeah. That's why we're talking about this. Right. But Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give you life more abundantly. Okay? The purpose of tonight is to ultimately point you towards Jesus. Yeah. My goal tonight is singular. I want to point you towards Jesus and see you set free and walking in the purity and power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's why we're talking about this tonight. Not because I have a bone to pick or to make anybody in the room feel guilty, right? Um, so as we talked about last week, Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins. He offers us grace, and he has come to set the prisoner free and release those who are in bondage. So again, it helps set the tone for what we're going to talk about tonight. But I want to give you five, whether you want to call these tools, weapons, words of wisdom, to fight the battle for sexual purity well and to walk in victory. Um, and while this talk is specifically aimed at the area of lust and pornography, I actually believe the principles I'm going to share with you tonight are applicable across the board to any type of sexual sin, but also just sin in your life. So if this is not like the major struggle for you, I would just take these principles and pay attention. I believe this will help you fight sin in your life uh, regardless. Number one is have clarity around what is biblically defined as sexual immorality. Okay? Number one is have clarity around what is biblically defined as sexual immorality. It's a lot easier to fight sin when you're not living in the grave. So let's start by defining what is biblically defined as sexual immorality. The Greek word used for sexual immorality found throughout the New Testament is porneia. David Geisick says that porneia is a broad word referring to any sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant. We know from Jesus' teaching that sexual immorality also extends beyond what we do with our bodies and includes the way we look with our eyes and the thoughts we entertain in our minds. Okay? Last week we talked about, the, again, the summary biblical story of marriage. Marriage is something God designed and therefore God defines. Okay? God designed the covenant of marriage in the garden and therefore God has the rights as the transcendent creator of the universe who has embedded everything in this world to purpose to define what it's for. Where there is no purpose, you cannot make a value assessment. Value assessments can only be made where there is purpose. And because God has defined the purpose for sexuality for marriage, he is able to say what is good and what is bad, right? Um, so human sexuality is also part of God's good design. Some of you need to hear that. Human sexuality is part of God's good design. Christians don't hate sex. Sex is not bad. Sex is not supposed to make you feel icky. Sex is not supposed to make you feel, ugh. Like, sex is part of God's good design when placed in the proper context of a one flesh covenant union yeah. throughout life between a male and a female. Yeah. Okay? We talked about last week, I feel like I need to hit this real quick. I forgot to say this earlier. When... <clears throat> When you enter a one-flesh union, what you're saying is that every part of our life is one. Legally, we're one. Our offspring, the responsibility to raise them is one. Our finances are one. What happens to us, good or bad, is one. Our legacy is one. Everything about our life, our goal, our, our, it's all common. It's all shared. It's one. And then sex becomes like icing on the cake that also says one. 
And Nancy Pierce, I, I quoted her out of Love Thy Body, said that when you have sex outside of marriage, you perform sexual murder, what you're basically doing is lying with your body, yeah. and you're saying one when you actually share oneness in no other part of your body. Mm -hmm. So it's like your body's saying, I've gone all the way, but your commitment is actually not there in any other part of your body. Mm -hmm. Okay? And the Bible calls us to be honest with every part of who we are, including our bodies. Okay? And therefore, when we pledge ourselves in a one flesh union, and I, I said last week, I've said this a little, like often, so it's not like I'm hiding this. And I had sex before marriage. I had tremendous amounts of sexual around in my life before I was ever married. So like, I have no stones to throw. Right? I, I want to say that up front. God redeemed that part of my and life. I've been married in, more, I, in like two weeks. I've been married for six years. Come on. Come on. I'm saying that for the sake of tone, right? Yeah. This is not some guy trying to make you feel bad, but man, I, I believe God's way is so much better. Yeah. Okay, I want you to hear that God's way is so much better. That's good. Um, according to the biblical worldview, sexual activity that occurs outside of marriage between one man and one woman is considered sexual immorality. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's a powerful statement. Everyone's always asking, especially at this age, God, what's your will for my life? Here's one verse. God's will for you is that you would be distinct, set apart, holy, and sanctified. So what do you do with your career? That's important. It's not like God doesn't care about that. He has the numbers of your hair. Number. Like, like that's crazy. He cares about that. Like, when one sparrow worth half a penny falls to the ground, he realizes that he cares about your marriage. He cares about your job. He cares about the city that you're going to live in. But you want to know, like, 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 black and white, what is God's will for my life? For you to be sanctified. You don't have to question, is it biblical? Does God want me to live different from the world? Does he want me to be set apart and sanctified? Right here. This is really like God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified. Mm -hmm. yeah. Man. That you should avoid, this is a continuation of that verse, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I can say what I've said up to this point on the foundation of God's word. This is not my opinion. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 through 5, 7 through 8. Bible commentator David Geisen writes that Paul gave these commands to a first century Roman culture that was marked by sexual immorality. At this time in the Roman Empire, chastity and sexual purity were almost unknown virtues. Nevertheless, hear this. Christians were to take their standards of sexual morality from God and not from culture. Okay? It's not like these people were so far removed and they were living in Leave it to Beaver world. And now you guys are like living with like, no, it's like every human generation has struggled in this area. And yet God continues to call us to live uh, sanctified, distinct, and set apart lifestyles. Remember that in Matthew 28, the Great Commission is go make disciples of all nations baptize them into the name, which also means the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. What happens oftentimes is that we try to become like culture, to reach the culture. We think that if we will remove the stumbling block of the cross and all the obstacles that come with it, we will draw people to Jesus. But what actually happens is we end up getting baptized into the culture. Yeah. Baptism means immersion. So we just get immersed into the culture and we forsake all the things Jesus has commanded us to obey. Yeah. Think about how backwards that is. It's the opposite of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is going to the nations as ambassadors and representatives of an unearthly kingdom and yeah. teach them the ethos and the value system of what it looks like to belong to God. Yeah. And then you baptize them to the name, the nature of the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
And sometimes we walk into culture like, oh man, I want to remove everything that would be difficult about this message. And we end up getting immersed in the culture and actually losing the ground we're standing on forsaking all the commands Jesus has taught us to obey. Okay? That's not gospel. So, at this point, I want to make clear, though, that temptation is not the same as sin. Okay? This is like major key in helping you guys fight temptation in your life and overcome shame and guilt. James 1, 14-15 says that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. When temptation gives birth to sinful thoughts or actions, it becomes sin. When you are tempted, here's what I want you to hear. This is why I'm saying this. When you are tempted, know that you are in a fight, but that is different than admitting defeat. As if the battle has already been lost. Here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine the difference between a football team who's down by 40 with two and a half minutes to go and a football team who's down by three with the same amount of time left to go. What is the difference in posture between the one who knows there's still a chance to win this thing and the person who says, I'm already defeated, so why don't we just throw our hands up and just surrender? Okay? If you feel like every time temptation comes on, it's, it, you've already lost the battle. You're not going to posture yourself in a way to take temptation serious and know that the fight is on. Okay? Take temptation, or sorry, know what the Bible defines as sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, here's some encouragement in that area. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, hear this, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Okay? Hebrews 12, 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What it's referencing here is Jesus, who was the faithful witness, who went all the way to the cross without sinning. And some people have said, I forget who this quote comes from, maybe Spurgeon talks about, I'm just going to paraphrase, how people think, well, Jesus doesn't really know the strength of temptation because he never sinned. No, it's the opposite. Think about a person who's in a triathlon and who gives up during, like, right after the swim portion. They never make it to the bike. They never make it to the road race. And now imagine the person who has run, like, Iron Man after Iron Man knows what it feels like to have like your legs screaming in pain and your chest feeling like it, and you can't draw another breath and like the air is like piercing your lungs and to feel the wind in their face, but they've never given up. Who knows how hard wow. an Iron Man is? The wow. person who quits or the person wow. who never quits? Wow. Um, Jesus never gave into temptation, and therefore he knows the full strength of temptation. When you are tempted, look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you've been here before, but you've never yielded. Teach me how to be strong. Okay? I love what John Piper said. He said, we need to learn how to exchange image for image, right? It's a battle of the mind. It's a battle of the eyes. So when you're thinking like you're tempted towards lust, you're tempted to draw off the image of your mind, of her undressed, or go to the website, whatever. Think about Christ crying out in agony from God, right? And you start exchanging images of what it looked like for Jesus to defeat the power of sin, for the sin that's trying to draw you into its trap. That makes sense? Understand what, this is point number one, understand what the Bible calls sexual morality so you know what you're actually fighting against. Number two, take temptation seriously. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Jesus speaking here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, what I don't think Jesus is asking us to do is literally cut off our arm or gouge out our eye. Right? But what he is doing is he is using the most dramatic language possible, which is called hyperbole to convey something he is serious about. Take temptation seriously. And do whatever is necessary to cut off what is tempting you in your life. Okay? Sometimes a misunderstanding of grace will cause us to take sin less seriously. Jesus, this is the irony, Jesus, the very one that we receive grace from, does not treat sin the same way. Okay? If you, we use grace to make sin like not a big deal in our lives. Jesus is the vehicle through whom, like, he's the, the one that we have received the grace of God from, because of. This is Jesus talking to you about how you should treat temptation. He doesn't take sin lightly, okay? His grace does not enable us. It empowers us to overcome sin, okay? His grace does not enable sin in our lives, it empowers us to overcome it. The exhortation, again, from this passage is clear. Cut off whatever is causing you to stumble and fall to sin. We need to be serious about identifying and cutting off whatever causes you to stumble. Let me ask you a question. What is causing you to stumble? And are you willing to let go of it? Are you willing to actually get honest with yourself, invite the Holy Spirit into that place and say, what is causing me to stumble in this area of my life? Or again, like I said, sexual temptation is not an area of your life. It's applicable and sin across the board. What is causing me to stumble? Am I willing to cut it off in my life? I'm going to give you some very... Practical. This is like me going dad mode. Like, I'm going to give you some very practical advice for cutting some things off in your life. Okay? Number one, uh, what television, movies, music, social media profiles, platforms need to go from your life? It's my conviction that we need to become more childlike in terms of our innocence and what we let through our eyes and what we let through our ears. Okay? Like I said before, I am 32 years old. I've been married almost six years. I have two kids. And most PG still PG thirteen movies I watch, my wife or I gets on IMDb Parents Guide and checks any sexual content, the language that's going to be used, whatever. And I have paid an arm and a leg to go to Concord Hill AMC on multiple occasions and walk out of the theater because what I was watching. This is not hard. We don't go to hard. Period. These are PG thirteen movies where we were sitting there. Something didn't agree with our spirit, and we got up and forfeited the, all the money we had paid to go to that movie to just say, I'd rather please the Holy Spirit than yeah. sit through this and have something inside of me feel comfortable, right? And I'm not saying that's like pat myself on the back, but I want to say, are you serious about fighting this in your life? Okay? I want to encourage you. You can Google IMDb Parents Guide for almost anything you want. And when you actually see it written out, it's like all of a sudden, like, am I okay with watching? I don't think I'm okay with watching that, right? That's good. It's about time that we stop allowing society to set the standard for what's okay. And we allow the Holy Spirit and our own sense of discernment to set the tone for what's okay and what's not okay. This is, for some of you, this is going to sound really, like, legalistic. If you're not serious about breakthrough, this is going to sound over the top. If you're serious about breakthrough in your life, this is going to be like the most logical, practical thing. It just totally makes sense. I should probably stop removing the stimulus of the sin from my life so that I'm not drawn into its lure. Okay? Uh, if clean out your social media feed and the accounts that you follow, again, as a married man, 
especially from our media page, because like mostly on my personal accounts, people that I know, people that I choose to follow that I want on there, but sometimes like uh, or on Ignite or whatever, there's just people that we follow in the showcase, we follow back, whatever, all of a sudden there's like a picture of a girl in whatever bikini, and I've done this on so many days where I just like throw the phone across the couch to my wife, and I say, I don't want to go to her profile and see more of that, unfollow it right now, you didn't do whatever, and so I want to tell you, have friends in your life that you can sit across from the thing and say, pin up my social media feed. You just go through because for some of you, it's like, well, it's porn if it's naked. Like, no, it's like, just stop following the accounts that are stimulating the lust in your life, wow. right? If there's a girl, like, come on, like, I, I'm not going to get graphic. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. And stop going to the discovery page, period. Just, just like, I'm going to say discovery page, like, just stop. Like, come on. Because you don't know what you're going to discover on that page. It's probably not, it's probably not a sanctification. I can almost promise you the discovery page is not taking you to God's will for your life, which is your sanctification. Okay? Maybe you just need to delete the profile altogether. But I want to tell you, like, what are, Jesus said, cut it off. What are you willing on a practical level to cut out yeah, of your life? Yeah, Put protective software on your device and allow someone else to set the password. And I would encourage you to do that tonight before you leave. Remember when I was working at the refuge, and this was not even an area, to be honest, that I was struggling in, but we were talking about things we had learned about a minister who had stumbled, fallen, something that happened, and like me and my brother, like, we don't want to be those guys. And it wasn't like a judgment thing, but it was like protection. I handed him my phone, he handed me his, and I just typed in something random, he typed in something random to set this task on our phone so it couldn't even allow us to search certain things. And I almost guarantee he's going to move on. He probably would never be able to remember the password if I wanted him to. So I'm like, shut out. You know what I mean? Like, you all need to do that. Hand your phone to a friend that when you text at 2 a.m., you want to get back into the site, they're like, look, I'm not going to let you. Or I just typed in some random number I could never remember. Right? And then it's like Covenant Eyes, Net Nanny, like the Google softwares that you can put on your phone to not allow you when it's late at night, early in the morning, you're feeling down and you want that hit like a drug, then it's just not there. It's not available, right? It's probably human nature. You'll like external things don't always actually limit it when it's a hard thing. You'll find a way. I know that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but let's put every obstacle in your way so that it's not easy for you. Yeah, okay? That's good. That's good. Are you all okay? I'm, I know I'm like foreign. So none of these things are going to make you look normal, and I, I think I have Regan's quote butchered, but since when did following Jesus ever supposed to look normal, right? Since when was following Jesus ever supposed to make you look normal, okay? So this might seem extreme to the world around you, but hey, you're no longer a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness, okay? The world's definition of freedom is total autonomy, do what you want, and I've said this before, I got this from Andy Bird, who's one of the directors of Why Wait. When the world follows that definition, it's chaos and anarchy. It's the book of Judges, which is one of the darkest books in the Bible. That definition of freedom is bondage to sin. Yep. Yeah. When you view your freedom as you're restored to your right relationship with God, you use your freedom to glorify God and to love and to serve the people and to give you more responsibility. That's true freedom. It leads to life and flourishing not only for you, but for society at large. That's good. Okay? So, again, it says, I'm closed now. Take uh, sin seriously. 2 Timothy 2.22 Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Yeah. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace, and enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Okay? Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. 
hey, when we got together as a leadership team, we were praying before you guys got here. I just, I felt like I was supposed to talk about this week, so I wasn't really thinking about finals and all the stuff you guys have going. I know that you feel heavy. I want to remind you of something. You may be coming here, oh my gosh, like, I made the decision to be here, and now we're talking about sexual sin. Like, I need to hear about whatever. Okay, this verse is saying that what's actually weighing you down is sin and temptation. But Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that some of what's weighing you down is not the burden of following Jesus. John said that Ooh, that <laughs> to, to love Christ means to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Yeah. That's in First yeah. John. Yeah. But this says, and the sin that entangles, and that weighs you down like no, 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 no. throw it off. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Throw it off. And put on the light and easy yoke of Jesus and find the better way. It's more good, right? Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, for the joy, for the joy, the eternal joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And here's another evidence that Jesus expects his followers to take temptation seriously. In the last line of the Lord's Prayer, which he taught his disciples to pray, he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, as you're taking temptation seriously, remember that you are not called to do this in your own strength, but to ask God for special help in fighting the specific temptation that you have. Do it in his strength, not me. Okay? Number three, walk in the light. Okay? Walk in the light. First John 5, uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and 2, 1 through 2 says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole Here's what I want to say. No one watches porn in the light. No one watches porn in the light. Unlike healthy natural plants which flourish with adequate sunlight, sin grows in the dark and dies when exposed to the light. Wow. Let's say that again. Sin dies when it's exposed to the light. Okay? We are able to walk in the light with God because of the blood of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. This is good news. Otherwise, the light of God would absolutely destroy us. Yeah. Okay? But because of the blood of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice, which I love that they're buried together in the same passage, we're able to enter into God's presence and tell him the truth. This is what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God. Yeah. It says that I, God has the truth, and instead of like hiding from it or excusing it, you agree with him and you say, yes, this is true. But then you repent of it, you turn, you change your whole program, your whole way of thinking, your actions accordingly to line up with God's truth. And the grace of God in that moment, the forgiveness, the mercy of God because of the blood of Jesus that bore the punishment for your sin is able to make you right in God's presence. That is amazing. So that's why you don't have to feel ashamed as you come into the light of God's presence. John 3, which, which we love, for God so loved the world, he gave his one only begotten son that whosoever uh, believes in him shall not perish. 
If you, like, we love that person. I love that person. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Skip down a couple more verses. It says, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness and hated the light. So they didn't receive Jesus. We have to not only, like, we we have to love the light, right? We have to love God's light and be willing to walk with him and know that we have the ability to walk with him because of the blood of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. And that is the good news. The light has come into the world. And we can receive him because of the cross, right? Walking in the light is about confessing our sins to God and one another so that we can receive grace and have fellowship with God and with one another. And with one another. Okay? Number four. I'm getting close to closing. You guys like this is so much. Don't just resist the devil. Draw near to God. Number four is don't just resist the devil. Draw near to God. Yeah. Okay? Don't just resist the devil. Draw near to God. James 4, 7 through 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Amen. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Okay? Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Make sure that you're not only focused on resisting the devil temptation, but that you throw yourself into seeking God. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is where you get on the offense, right? Like if Walt is a strong dude were to come up here and start pushing on me and I'm just trying to like stand my ground, it's going to be so much easier to get pushed back if I'm just trying to maintain where I'm standing. But if I start leaning into it a little bit, I know that I weigh more than Walt. I can throw my weight around, right? Nice. And it's like... Man, it's like now all of a sudden my forward lean gives me the ability to move past what's resisting me, right? And I want to say you need to have some forward lean in your walk with God, right? You need to be pursuing God. You need to be actively leaning into it. Don't make sin your focal point. Make Christ your focal point. Focus on Jesus, right? Cultivate a rich relationship with God. Feast on the riches of God's glory revealed in Christ Jesus. Behold the glory of Christ by considering him. I promise you, if you saw today Jesus ascended in glory, just like all the prophets, all the holy men who saw him, Isaiah, John in the book of Revelation, you'd be like a sack of potatoes. You would hit the ground because the beauty would be so overwhelming it would almost kill you. Definitely in your non-resurrected glorified body. So you're like, yeah, that would probably help drive out sin from my life, right? While you, maybe the Lord would give you that type of visionary experience, while most of us probably will never have that in this life, we can see him, 2 Corinthians 3 says, when we behold him. Or sorry, when we consider him. By considering him, we behold him. When you think about what I talked about before, the, the incarnation, and you think about, like, vividly engage your imagination. Come on, if you can do this for lust, you can do this for the Bible. Lust is inordinate love working in the wrong direction towards objects of perversion. A healthy, sanctified imagination is when you start meditating on God's word and his attributes and filling yourself with the beholding of Christ, right? And the light of the gospel starts getting, when you start thinking about things like the cross and you start thinking about his suffering and what it looked like for his back to be cut open with a cat of nine tails and every drop of blood that fell was for the healing of the nations and for the redemption of your bodies, for your sins. All of a sudden it's like, wow! Jesus is beautiful. I love to think about Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate like a lamb who is silent before his shears. And he bore faithful witness. He didn't open his mouth, right? It's like, what what kind of meekness and humility? 
Consider Jesus. Engage your imagination in the right direction. Get yeah. offensive with that, right? Think about I was just thinking about while I was driving here because I was listening to worship, and worship is helpful. This reading of the Bible is helpful in this. Getting around friends who talk about Jesus. Like when I get around Sam, and Sam is just talking about the richness of Christ, it is provoking me to think about Jesus. Talk about Jesus, right? And, and so I'm, I'm driving here listening to worship, and it's talking about the angel pushing back the stone. And I'm like, picture what that looked like when the angel came down and rolled back the stone at the resurrection. And all of a sudden, when the stone was no longer encasing it, the light of the resurrected Lord, Lord, can you imagine? Can you imagine when that stone came back and Jesus is in his resurrected, eternal, glorified body? And, and it's not, like, and the light of his face. It's shining from that place where three days later his body lay cold. Wow. Redeem your imagination for the glory of God. Amen. Don't just resist the devil. Draw near to God. Behold the glory of God that rests in the face of Jesus by considering him. Think about him. Pray to God for the sake of getting to know Him intimately. Don't just come with your wish list, with your wants, with your needs. Come to prayer with a desire to get to know God. Fill yourself with God's Word. Use fasting to deny your flesh and grow in spiritual hunger. You know what you'll learn through fasting? I have terrible fasting. I said this last time. I'm so bad at fasting. I'm not one of these, like, every other month, blue eagle, four-day fast, whatever, like, stresses me out. You know? Sometimes I'm praying, like, like oh, I wouldn't call me to fast. Um, but all that to say, when you fast, what you do is you say, I don't live off of my spirit and my physical appetite. Your sexual urges are a physical appetite. So what you're saying is I live off of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God, you are what satisfies you. You are what fills me, right? And so I want to encourage you, if you've never fasted before, start with like one meal, maybe once a week. Just say, man, every Tuesday I'm going to fast lunch, right? Or figure out your schedule. Every Tuesday. I mean, and then maybe work in towards like, man, every Tuesday I'm going to fast breakfast and lunch. Or, or just whatever. I mean, God may call you something more radical. It's like, brother was just sharing recently, it was while he was fasting that God broke this stronghold in his life, specifically of sexual sin. Wow. Yeah. So just ask the Lord, maybe it starts somewhere, but maybe, and I want to say, like, specifically do a biblical fast of food. Maybe you need to do liquids during it, but like, starve your physical hunger to embrace weakness and draw your strength from God. Yes. You, let me tell you up front, you won't feel stronger when you fast. Okay? Like, the goal of fasting is to, is to willfully embrace weakness to switch your source from you and physical appetites to God. Okay? And so I just want to encourage you as a person who's bad at fasting, but it's good. Like, you know, so I'm not up here as like some spiritual giant saying like, I mean, I'm fasting all the time, but I do want to encourage you. Especially if this is a stronghold in your life to embrace a little bit of fasting. Delight yourself in the Lord. Don't treat all your spiritual disciplines as duties, but learn how to delight yourself in the Lord. Yeah. How to make yourself happy in the Lord. Okay. Drink deeply of Christ until your soul is satisfied. Usually what you're trying to fill through lust, through pornography, whatever, is some other yeah, desire. Some other need for satisfaction in your life. So a need for validation, right? No one's saying go to the source. Yeah. Drink deeply of Christ. This is number five. This is my last one. This is going to be short. Is make sure that your loves and passions are in proper orientation. Make sure that your loves and passions are in proper orientation. If you hear nothing else I said all night, it would be this. Love Jesus more than you love anything else in this world. 
allow the pain of offending or sinning against Jesus to be great, like greater than your desires for them. Like I think about, like I mean, obviously I would like. I'm curious. Let me use this as an example. In my own relationship with my wife, one, I would say my first reason that I'm not ever trying to have an affair with my wife is because I fear the Lord. Right? That's, that's a good reason, and I, I want to please him. Right? Then there's the thought that I love my wife, and I don't want to. And also the thought like, of the pain that that would cause her, because both of us come from divorced families where our fathers, we saw the fallout. We're still seeing the fallout years later of moms who went through that. I'm like, man, not my wife, not, not my kids. You know what I mean? And so it's like, now I want you to think about that in your relationship with the Lord. Love him more than you want these other things. Where it's like, man, in the moment, I actually I feel this strong sexual impulse, this desire, but the thought of turning my back on you for this moment to do this thing is a pain I can't bear because yeah. I love you so much. That's good. That's good. Make sure that your loves are in a proper order, right? Mm-hmm. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In another place, he says, with all your strength. He wanted to say this is the first and greatest commandment. When he was asked this question, what's the first and greatest commandment? It wasn't just like what's the first and list of commandments. It was what ordering principle. What principle should order all of our life? What should be like the umbrella thing under which everything else finds its proper place? Yep. Love God when you're told being. He leaves no part of your being out. With all of your heart, with all your will, with all of your appetites, with all of your desires, with your mind, with all of your mental faculties, like the imagination I was talking about before. Man, with all of your soul, your very life, and with all of your strength, with every possible thing you can use to love God, take it all of you. Amen. Okay? Jesus commanded us to love him more than we love anything in this world and for all of our other loves to be subordinate to this first love. When we love God this way, sex will not rise to the level of idolatry in our lives. Our sexual desires will not rise above our love for God. Our sexual desires, we want you here, may not be removed, but they'll be put in their proper place. They will be contained within the appropriate boundaries God created for sex within marriage as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay? Whatever you desire most is going to win in your life. Whatever you desire most is what's going to win in your life. Whatever you desire most is what is going to win in your life. Tim Keller once said, I'm going to get ready to close with this quote, when you just put pressure on the will, you don't change the real thing that needs to be changed. For you for you to really be changed, and that is your loves have to be changed. The loves of your heart. For example, someone once said to me, my doctor told me that I'm working too hard. I tend to be a workaholic. I overwork. And my doctor said, your body can't take it. You've got to stop. I've been trying to slow down. I've been trying to slow down, but I can't slow down. Here's why. If the thing you love the most is money and success and power, then that's what controls you. And you're going to stay a workaholic until you love something more than money and success. Wow. Or somebody has said to me in the past, I just can't get over the rejection and over the betrayal and over the shame that comes from it and the anger that comes from it. And he said, if your reputation is more important to you than anything else, if you love your reputation and you love human approval and you lost human approval and you lost your reputation in that incident, no, you'll never get over that anger or the shame of it. But if you love something more, but if you love something more. Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon years ago called The Expulsive 
power of a new affection. Hmm. That's a powerful statement right there. The expulsive power of a new affection. It's like this new affection is going to drive out the wild, right? Wow. And this is what he says in it. This is the secret to change. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an ultimate object of beauty and joy. The heart's desire for a particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of beauty. Amen. Does that make sense? Yes, big words there. I will read it again because it really is powerful. The secret to change. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an ultimate object of beauty and joy. The heart has to have something to latch on to. Like, the seed of your affections has to have something seated there. Right? I think Leslie Newman would say that the shrine can't be empty. There's only one who can actually fill that. It's Jesus. He has sufficient beauty, sufficient majesty, sufficient glory, fascination, all these things to hold our hearts. The heart's desire for a particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of old affection is by the explosive power of a new world. To conquer the things of this world in tonight's context, in order to sexual desires, you must love Jesus more. It's really that simple. So I know people have left the room tonight because maybe they had other stuff to do, or maybe I really offended them. That's totally okay. Here's what I want to say. You're still in the room, and I don't know where you're at tonight. I want to make sure that this was not all just moralizing, but I want to give you practical tools to get in the fight and to know what to do when probably 15 minutes after you leave your temptation starts knocking at your door and that's how it usually goes. Right? But I want you to know that you are not called to do this in your own strength and it won't be enough for you just to come up with 10 new ways to fight this thing if your focus is not shifting towards Christ and you are not allowing more of him into your life and replacing the old desire with a greater desire to reward Jesus. You are called to be a Christ follower, right? Which does require resisting sin, but your primary business is not just resisting sin, it's following Jesus, right? It's, man, it's, I want to tell you, get as offensive as possible, which means throw yourself into the stuff that you deem radical Christianity, that's really just normal Christianity. Yeah. Like right. sharing the gospel and discipling people and attending Bible studies and prayer meetings and all these types of things and reading your Bible. Man, I want to encourage you to do that, right? And not and change this question. I'll end on this. Change this question. How far is too far? How much can I get away with? With what would ultimately glorify God? Mm-hmm. The first one is basically, God, how much sin will you permit in my life? And the second one is, God, you were I was created for your glory. How would you be maximally glorified? I really believe that a group of people who are embracing God's will for their life to be sanctified, to be set apart and distinct would have a transformative effect on this campus. Would we agree that this campus is probably less powerful in terms of its world influence than the Roman Empire? Yeah. Yeah. We agree with that? Yes. You know, one of the things that helped Christianity pull down the Roman Empire from beneath was its radically different sexual ethic. Yeah. Well. That confronted it was so different. It brought value to women, right? It changed the family dynamic. Children that were being thrown literally to like the trash pile of unwanted babies, and especially girls that would walk into Christian homes. I want to tell you, this love for family, this love for the biblical ethic for sexuality, Played a major role in pulling down the largest empires in history, but not through a political takeover, mm-hmm. but through living out following Jesus. Wow. Wow. And so, do I believe that the power? 
I believe that the powers and principalities that are driving, I, I'm pretty sure even just this week there was some type of weird table convention of all types of bizarre sexual things. I don't say that for sure, but I walked by and I was like, what happened to this room during the week? And I was like, oh, interesting, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting preparing outside, it was beautiful order this week, it was probably Wednesday or Thursday at a picnic table. And I'm sitting there doing my notes, and I did not see this. I mean, how many picnic tables could I have sat on campus, right? How many different places could I have sat down? I didn't see it when I came up and I sat there, I'm doing my work, until I got up and put all my stuff in my backpack. And right between my heels is a condom pack. And you're like, big deal. I, it, was, it was like, in this moment, like, oh, this is a sign. Like, this right here is a picture on a college campus that there's this belief that we can do this safely outside of how you've designed it. We can use this other than the purpose that you created for it. It has special significance for me because one time I was standing right out there where many of you have seen me stand on the whiteboard sharing the gospel. And while I'm standing there telling this person about Jesus, a snake comes up in between my feet in the same spot that like this condom was. And it was like, I mean, it took the same position. I wasn't sitting in the same spot. And you know, Genesis 3.15 is, is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first proclamation of the gospel in seed-like form. But I'm going to put energy between your seed and her seed. You will bite and steal, and he will crush your head. And that's the first confirmation that there's one coming through the line of the woman, Jesus Christ our Messiah, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. He will be wounded, but he will destroy the enemy. What is that? It's the cross where he himself is the wounded healer, right? He's, he's bit, but man, it's, it's through his cross that victory is won. And there I am standing. I'm not in the woods. I'm standing on a college campus on a sidewalk, and a snake comes between my feet while I'm standing there sharing the gospel. And I felt like it's like, even as you proclaim the truth of this, as you reenact, like, what happened on that day, yeah. it's like, but again, it's like, and then here I am, I'm sitting here, and it's like, man, I'm going to touch this hot button issue that, like, probably, like, not like my favorite topic, you know what I mean? But it's like, yeah. but I can stand here with the conviction, this is better, and it's yeah. yet another way that Jesus is taking the powers of the principalities, he's placing them beneath yeah. his feet, that's the soul. Every enemy placed beneath the Lord's feet. This is the giant. This is the Goliath in your generation. This is the thing keeping people from the faith. This is the thing taking people from the faith. And if you will stand up for biblical definition of sexual purity in this generation, I want to tell you, man, the Lord's grace and favor be on you. Man, I, and I believe you're picking a major fight, but God, greater is he who is in you than he is I want to tell you, this is a fight worth, like, fight. This is something worth having. And it's worth it not just for you. It's worth it for your future spouse. Yeah. It's worth it for your kids. Yeah. And it's worth it for their kids after that. Yeah. This is a battle worth fighting for. Father, in Jesus' name, 